You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. What's up, music fans? Welcome back to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and I've got two of my best friends here. Where I have got journalist and DJ Rob Levy. Hello. And drummer, singer, songwriter, bird enthusiast, Stephanie Seymour. Hello, everybody. And we are joined by a very special guest this week. We have Catherine Yeske-Taylor joining us. And Catherine is a New York-based author and journalist who began her career as a rock critic in Atlanta in the 1990s, interviewing Georgia musical royalty such as Indigo Girls, R.E.M., The Black Crows, and others while she was still a teenager. Since then, she has conducted several hundred interviews and is a regular contributor to Billboard, Spin, American Songwriter, and other great magazines. Her new book, She's a Badass, Women in Rock Shaping Feminism, is available now from Backbeat Books. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's Man, a real it's such pleasure. It's a, a pleasure to meet you. I, I know that you all your all your bio information talks about you growing up in Atlanta, but I read in an article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that I think you were in Sandy Springs. Yeah, um, that's where I graduated from high school, and that's where I started my music career, uh, writing yeah. for the North Springs uh, school newspaper. <laughs> That's so awesome. Uh, so you, you, you don't know this yet, but I live in Doraville. Oh, I, okay. I currently work at the Sandy Springs Library. Do you really? Ah, I do. World. <laughs> so I, I manage the teen programming and I have a lot of kids who come who are from North Springs High School. So, you know, oh, very cool. I'm right in the middle of your stomping. I don't know if you know this, but like two blocks away from the library now, we have a big, fancy, new performing arts center and theater. Oh, that's great. It's really cool. It's really nice. A lot of uh, national touring bands come through here. Um, so I would love to hear you talk a little bit about the Atlanta music scene. And after high school, you went to college in Athens. Mm -hmm. Talk about the differences in the, the music scenes in Atlanta and Athens at that time, because this is in the 90s and this is a really fertile time for the Atlanta music scene. Yeah, I mean, as a teenager, I was just all a quiver about what was happening in the music scene in Atlanta. Sandy Springs at that time did not have a performing arts center. It didn't right. really have too much of anything. I mean, it was very solidly suburban, very beautiful part of town, but very sleepy. And so every chance I got, I would go down to Little Five Points and parts of town that were, in my mind, a lot more interesting that way. Um, and, and and I met a lot of of other uh, teenagers who really liked music and we quickly figured out the places that would let us come in underage nobody you know would let us have drinks or anything like that they were pretty strict about that but we weren't really interested in going into these places to party we really genuinely wanted to go in and and, and watch people perform and um 
one of those places was Trackside Tavern, which still exists. And, you know, as long as we sat there quietly, we could come in and watch people play. And there were a lot of local artists in Atlanta at that time who were regulars at these places and who took notice of me being there all the time and got to know me kind of on a on a first name basis and it kind of took me under their wing in a way, you know, made sure no one gave me a hard time. They were really very kind to me and it treated me really well. Like, I don't remember anybody kind of um, disrespecting me for being some kid. They seemed to really appreciate that I was there as an enthusiastic music fan. Yeah. And I remember going to a show at Trackside one day, right before I graduated from high school, and Caroline Aiken and Dee Dee Vogt, who are two women who did singer-songwriter type of music, were playing that night and they dedicated the show to me and wished me luck at college. And it was just a really sweet mm. send-off. I mean, the Atlanta music scene to me at that point was just really a very embracing kind of place. But I was really excited to get over to Athens because I really wanted to go to journalism school. And I really wanted to get to Athens because R.E.M. was and still is my favorite band. Oh, and wow. um, I also really loved the B-52s. So I kind of went from one really great scene to the other, you know, got to Athens and, and it was everything I would you know, I'd hoped it would be and started writing for, you know, non-school <laughs> publications <laughs> there, really got my start. My editor at Flagpole Magazine in Athens, Hilary Meister, is still a very dear friend of mine. I made a lot of friends who remain really close friends of mine to this day. So I really can't say enough about getting my start in Atlanta and Athens. They really were extraordinary places to be, um, not just because of the artists coming out of them at that time, but because of the, the attitude people had within them for the most part, just really supportive. It was really great. That's fantastic. Yeah. I don't get to Athens as often as I would like. Yeah, I, I just was back in Athens in June um, for a visit. So I do get back as often as I as I can. First of all, I just want to say the, the book is fantastic. I was so excited to read all these amazing and powerful stories of so many influential women in, in music. And before we delve into their source, I want to know because I thought it was just obviously the running theme through the book. I want to know if you consider yourself a feminist, because I, I, I noticed that some of the older women, I don't want to generalize too much, but some of the older women in being interviewed in the book, like Susie Quattro and Exine and Sherry Curry, like they didn't really embrace that word as much as some of the younger women. Mm -hmm. I, I would consider myself a feminist, yes. Yeah. But when I talk to the women in the book who really have a problem with that label, yeah, I, I understood their reasons once we really walked through their life stories. Um, yeah. And that's why I did this in the format that I did uh, in terms of telling someone's whole life story, not just kind of jumping in the start of their music career. Because I feel like if you can understand where someone comes from, then you can really understand why their attitudes are shaped in a certain way. Yes. So, yeah, in my case, you know, I, I grew up, you know, my mother's really a very strong person. I grew up watching her be, she worked as a nurse, so she was really fearless and, and strong and um, very calm and in, in stressful situations. And I really admired that. I wish I had inherited more of that. <laughs> um, I am not, I am not calm in stressful situations. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> and she, you know, really instilled in me, you know, a pride in, in being female and the strength that it requires to be one in society, you know, in a time when some people just aren't going to let you reach your full potential simply because you are a woman. So she really instilled that idea in me that we have to kind of take our strength back as much as possible. Mm -hmm. On that note, I was struck in reading the book how many different versions of feminism these people that you're interviewing ascribe to. Because like Anne and Exine talk about being hesitant to call themselves feminists because the term has changed definition so much over time. Lydia mm -hmm. Lunch prefers the term confrontationalist because she feels feminist isn't radical enough. Sheree Curry questions what feminism even is in today's world, and Tanya Donnelly holds tight to that label in honor of the women who fought before her. So I'm just wondering, as you were going into these interviews, were you surprised by the range of response that you got to that term, or did some of the views surprise you? Uh, yeah. It absolutely did. One of the earliest meetings I had with my publisher after I signed the book contract was, you know, I knew that it was going to be about 20 chapters and they were concerned, as was I, that reading one after the other, it could be very samey, samey, you know, they right. were mm -hmm. very concerned that it would get monotonous because it'd be one similar story about music, a uh, woman in music after another. And so I was concerned about that, but I wasn't really sure what I was going to do about it yet, not knowing exactly what people were going to tell me. So in one way, it was kind of a relief when all these differing opinions started to come out because I thought, well, that solves that problem. But um, <laughs> yeah. it, it kind of had another problem come up where I thought, well, wait a minute, you know, because I already knew the title of the book. Uh, I wanted it to be, you know, she's a badass woman in rock shaping feminism. And I guess I had assumed that anyone who signed on to do a book with that title would be a feminist. And so yeah. I had a moment of panic where I went back to the publisher and said, look, you know, some of these women adamantly oppose being called that, but I still think it, it fits the thesis of this book because it's not like they aren't supportive of women's equality. Right. They just don't like that particular label, yes. the connotation that it has come to embody or the way that the certain feminist movements have progressed. So it's not that, I mean, they might disagree with me, but I think in their way, all of these women are feminists, yeah. whether they embrace that title or not. So right. Lydia, I thought Lydia Lunch's term a humanist was yeah. my favorite of all because that's kind of in a way what i relate to the most you know she's mm -hmm. just she's just sort of raging against the patriarchy <laughs> for anybody which but yeah. i think a feminist is under that humanist term you know also yeah well, I thought it was really interesting also that, um, you know, there were some similarities between all of these women too. And a really major one that came up without me prompting was every single one of these women brought up examples of men who had helped them significantly, yeah. yes. who had been champions of them. Another thing that I had worried about when I started this book was, you know, I didn't want this to be some kind of male bashing, man-hating screed. I, I really <laughs> was worried that it could devolve into that if I wasn't careful, because I just didn't know how angry the women would be when they were talking to me about things. Right. And it turned out that everybody had stories of things that had infuriated them or frightened them or, you know, things that were really bad. But then they also, on the flip side, 
all brought up stories of men who had championed them. And they made the very clear point of they don't hate men. They just hate it when certain men have treated them this way. Exactly. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think is a real strength of the book is that you arrange, first of all, you have a range of, of people that you're interviewing from early in their career now to like legends who came up in earlier decades and you arrange these basically chronologically. So it goes from the seventies up through very modern artists. And I think that because of that, you get that range of responses to the term feminism, but you also kind of see the evolution of the definition of that term as you read through the interviews. And I think it's really, really interesting. Well, thank you. That was my intention. Um, That's why I structured it that way for those reasons. And also I wanted people to be able to clearly see, you know, how progress has been made um, or not. There's areas where things still are stubbornly an issue. And I I wanted to get women who really had fought for certain rights that we enjoy now. I thought there might be uh, some younger women reading this who might not realize some of the struggles that some women had gone through and and the way that the music business uh, had been in the 70s, which is in many ways quite different from now. Just think of Susie Quattro's story. I mean, she was the only person really. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, now too, when you're talking about like Orianti. Orianti Mm -hmm. or Sade Sanchez of LA or Fifi Dobson, these younger artists who, you know, have had struggles as well, but they're not always the same kind of struggles no. as the right. older artists. And they have so like many more examples of women doing it, you know, for themselves kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, Toby Vale of Bikini Kill in her chapter had a really important point that I hope people um, pick up from this, which she explicitly says, you know, look, um, progress isn't linear. Just because we've won certain rights doesn't mean we're going to always have them. We have to work to maintain them. We could lose them. We are losing them. Yes. I think that um, that was a really uh, important point to to make because I think the risk could be, you know, that the next generations don't realize what was fought for, how things used to be, and what they could be again if we're not careful. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Bikini Kill. I wanted to sort of jump in because when I was in New York in the 90s and sort of started doing my journalism stuff in the 90s, one of the big movements was the Riot Girl movement. Mm -hmm. And at the time, it was mostly being, well, coined and packaged and, you know, signed by by label people that were mostly men. So I'm just kind of wondering if you could kind of talk about the importance of that movement in advancing feminism and music in the 21st century because it really seems like i think upon hindsight it's left a bigger imprint than a lot of people may have suspected yeah um that movement has kind of come under fire you know and because people say well it wasn't inclusive enough you know it was it was uh, middle class white women for the most part and you know that's valid and that's a valid criticism but i think in this book you can kind of see that the riot girl movement was a real turning point in some ways, because that was the first movement where women in the music business really took things into their own hands in a way that hadn't been done before. Um, As you said, up until that point, women were kind of constrained by, you know, they had to get a record deal. And that meant that it was being controlled by executives who were mostly male. 
they had to get on the radio and that was also controlled mostly by men. And so the riot girl movement came along and it was this, when it started out, it was kind of this um, grassroots movement where a lot of it was done amongst women themselves via the US mail, you know, women mailing cassettes to each other, mailing fanzines to each other, having local chapters where they would meet and having shows that they put on themselves. It, it was outside of the traditional music business. And then of course, like always happens with something that seems like oh, it's gaining popularity. Yeah. You know, the, the record companies did get involved eventually, but uh, a lot of that independent spirit really remained. So even though I think there are some criticisms of that movement that are entirely valid, I think it really did an immense amount to have women's equality take a gigantic leap forward in the early 90s. The other thing, too, is that it almost happened simultaneously as the movement in hip hop, which, you know, is kind of interesting because you've got Latifah and Moni Love and mm -hmm. MC Light and all this kind of doing this simultaneously more than piggybacking off of it. So it, it is interesting how that movement just sort of sparked this whole wave yeah. of things. And I would say one of the reasons why I chose to do Women in Rock specifically yeah. for this book is, first of all, yes, I had to narrow it down. Yeah. But also, uh, and people might have differing opinions uh, on this, but from my perspective as a music journalist and, and covering a pretty wide range of, of musical styles in my career, it seems like other genres have really surpassed rock in terms of mm -hmm. women's equality. Mm. Like, I cover quite a number of country artists and that genre of music really seems to be pretty equal in many ways. Now, you know, you hear just as many female artists as men when you turn on a country station these days. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say the same thing is happening pretty much with hip hop these days. Mm -hmm. Most of the major hip hop artists, you'd say it's evenly divided amongst men and women, but rock, for whatever reason, is still really stubbornly lagging behind. And I'm not sure why that is. It might be uh, because of the historic you know, kind of swagger the the, the testosterone right. <laughs> um, vibe of rock and roll just lingers. I'm not sure if that's it or if it's something else, but yeah. I really wanted to cover rock specifically in this book for that reason. And as I'm doing interviews, people are saying, well, you know, what about Taylor Swift? What about this person? What about that person? <laughs> and I have to say, well, it, it's really outside the scope of this book because I yeah. really did want to narrowly yeah. focus on rock. And that does still have pretty wide range of styles. I mean, this book covers yeah. everything from mainstream yeah. artists to punk, to, yeah. you know, to, it's pretty broad range, but still encompasses rock specifically. Mm -hmm. Speaking of your point, Rob, about the, the Riot Girl movement, and how it advanced so many things. I, I also thought it was interesting though, hearing from like Gina Shock and Lydia Lunch and Xene about how they felt that the punk scene did not really oppress women. There was a lot of women yeah. doing all sorts yeah. of things in the in the punk scene it was like that that DIY thing. So I think that advanced that on that level, that that was like an advancement too for for a lot of women in that older scene. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, the sense I got from talking to them was more that that was kind of um, particular scenes, you know, like the New York scene, yeah. LA scene, um, whereas the Riot Girl movement really seemed to sweep the country yeah. overall. Yeah. I'm not, I'm yeah, not sure why that is, because, I mean, the Riot Girl movement kind of just depended on, like I said earlier, like, 
women mailing stuff to each other and any of the punk scene could have done that too and maybe it did to a certain extent but i don't know why it became so much more widespread i mean honestly i thought that the big shift in that was when it hit the midwest is when i was starting to hear like velocity girl and bratmobile in stations in the midwest yeah. um i think that because it wasn't necessarily a new york just a new york la thing it's like this is a big thing right yeah i think that's part of it too laura veers talks about that in her yeah. chapter mm-hmm. um, she's yeah. originally from colorado but she went to college in minnesota and that's where she found out about the riot girl movement and that's what yeah. prompted her to have the, her music career so it definitely was far reaching that movement yeah I kind of wanted to circle back, you know, talking about this and your ideas of, you know, just focusing on rock and things about. So talk us back to sort of the genesis of the book. You knew you wanted to write the book. You knew you had to sort of focus on rock to sort of get a a base for it. Can you just kind of talk about how the book came about, the process of it? Did you reach out to people you'd already interviewed or already knew or how did it sort of germinate and, and happen? Well, um, I actually wasn't thinking about writing a book. (laughs) I had interviewed Danita Sparks of L7 and a literary agent wrote me out of the blue and just said, I really enjoyed that article. And I looked up a bunch of your other articles and have you considered writing a book? And, you know, that's something that had kind of crossed my mind. I think it crosses every journalist's mind. It's kind of the, the holy grail of, you know, of <laughs> being a journalist, you know, is to have a book in your hands and that you wrote. But I never really seriously looked into how do you actually do that? You know, the, the idea of how, how do I get a literary agent? I don't know. You know, that kind of thing. It just I hadn't really dug too deep. So having someone approach me like that was really interesting. And when I looked him up and saw that he was legit and we started having some brainstorming sessions, you know, we circled back to that Danita article and as we were trying to think of subjects for a book that I could do. And he said, well, have you ever thought of writing a a book about women in music business and feminism? And as soon as he said that, Mm -hmm. I thought that's, that's it. That's a topic I can do because over the years I've heard a lot of stories from women about their experiences in this business. And I just knew that there would be enough to fill a book. So I wrote a proposal and he shopped it around and we got a deal pretty, pretty quickly uh, with Backbeat out of the, the places that seemed interested. They seemed like the ones that were going to really let me take the topic and run with it. So I really appreciate that. And when I came back to them, actually, when it seemed like it was going to be much different than the original vision because of the don't call me a feminist thing, they they allowed me to, yeah. to expand. And I really appreciate that. And then as far as getting people for the book, yes, I'd say about two thirds of the people in this book are people I've interviewed before. You know, Gina Shock of the Go-Go's, Ann Wilson, Suzanne Vega, Orianti, Shade Sanchez of LA Witch, Bonnie Bloomgarden of Death Valley Girls, Laura Veers, Amy Ray of Indigo Girls, like many of them were people that I could send articles to their teams and say like, hey, remember this piece that I did last year or a couple of years ago or whenever it was. Or in high school, talking yeah. about Amy Ray. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was a funny one because when I called up their manager, Russell Carter, he was funny because I, he, of course he didn't remember me. From that, but I had to uh, remind him and say like, look, when I was 16 years old, I remember having a terrifying conversation with you. <laughs> Uh, he was so intimidating, you know, and he just thought that was hilarious. And so, yeah. Uh, 
so yeah, so um, once those two thirds uh, of the chapters were filled, then I was able to approach some people who I had never interviewed before, but wanted to, mm-hmm. and they were willing to do it, such as Exian Cervenka. I'd never mm. interviewed Exian Cervenka. I'd yeah. never interviewed Toby Vale. There were some key people that I really wanted to get, and uh, I'm just glad that they were willing to do it after they saw the other names that were attached to this project. Had you interviewed Susie Quattro? Yes, I have. In fact, um, Susie and Anne Wilson were not only the first two people in the book, you know, the first two chapters, but also the first two people who signed on. Oh, that's really cool. Speaks volumes to me about the way that women who really truly have fought for equality put their money where their mouth is. You know, they really turned around and said, "Okay, I'm going to help." the next woman in line they yeah. do that yeah so i really appreciate that because that's getting really- those two in particular was that was huge yeah you just sparked something that i that i had um written down that Catherine popper had talked about mm-hmm. which was she really rang true to me a lot of things she said and i to be honest i had not heard of her before i read this book and i now i'm like i gotta know all about her because I was like, <laughs> yeah like, Catherine's um, amazing. Yeah. yeah. But one thing she did say was that a, a lot of women, she said, they they shut down, they get hard, they don't know it, but they they come across really bristly around younger women mm-hmm. because that's how they were treated. And she said, and I don't ever want to do that. And I just thought, wow, that's interesting. And so to your point of Susie and Anne putting their money where their mouth is, mm-hmm. is really fantastic. But I, mm-hmm. I suppose that there's also people who might you know, come across, you know, they, they get tough. Like she said, they get hard and they, they put up a defense mechanism, you know? Yeah. And especially in this business where I think you had, especially back in the seventies and and early eighties, people had to be so tough that you could see how, yeah. uh, Like uh, I think Susie Quattro is the one who said, you know, I had to be really careful to not calcify. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, because I think that, it would be really easy to do that because then no one can hurt you anymore. And then, but then how do you, you can't just decide to be that way and then not be that way in, in pretty much every aspect of your life. You know, I know. When, you, when you become that way, I think it's kind of a permanent thing. So. Yeah, definitely. Right. right. I enjoyed the book an awful lot. One of my favorite chapters though, I've been a, a, a an Indigo Girl fan for a long time. I absolutely adore them. But I learned a lot of stuff in that Amy Ray chapter. There was a lot of things yeah. that I wasn't aware of that I felt like, yeah, you know, at too. least for me, me this too. was new information. And I was <laughs> I was really impressed with me her too. openness. I, I Yeah, I was shocked. They were one of the first bands that let me interview them when I was so young. I mean, I probably looked about 12 years old when <laughs> I first sat down with them and I was so scared and they were so kind. And I've interviewed them a few times more over the years and they've always been that way and i will say their audience i don't i don't know how they've done this but their audience is probably the kindest and most supportive audience i've ever encountered mm. wow and it was a little bit um sad to me to talk to her for this book also though because i don't know what surprised you about her chapter but what surprised me was when she talked about her struggles with being really self-hating and, yeah, and that's angry. Exactly yeah. Yes. And I had no idea because right. being a teenager in Atlanta, when Indigo girls were really taking off to me, it seemed like, 
they had it made totally. you know right. from my perspective it really just seemed like they were living the life and so to kind of hear these stories about how at the time she really wasn't happy yeah. and it took her a long time to get to be happy and feel comfortable in her own skin it kind of made me sad you know i know i agree i mean having seen them way 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 back you know same thing like it was a shocking kind of reality. You know, I kind of felt the same way when I read Kathy Valentine's book. Just you look there, there that's my idol. That's why I started playing music. And I, you you look at pictures of them then and they're just like these fun loving girls. But man, they were, you know, some of them were going through the roughest times of their life and you just, you don't know it, you know, but that's, I guess that's life. That's everybody. But that, yeah, right. that Amy Ray chapter was pretty, pretty heartbreaking in ways. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that she opened up to me. There were a few people that opened up like that, that really surprised me. And in a sense, then I've heard from a couple of people who have read their chapters and said, oh, wow, like, I just now yeah. am realizing like just how much I said. And you can tell they're a little bit like, whoa. Right. <laughs> but um, uh, I'm glad they felt comfortable enough with me to, to open up in that way. And I... I think they all feel good about it because uh, they know that someone else reading it now, it might help them. Like, I really think mm -hmm. there's someone out there that Amy Ray's chapter could really help. Oh, someone I have no doubt of that. Yeah. Who um, is having the same kind of struggles with um, Amy talks a lot about how she struggled trying to reconcile the fact that she feels as masculine as she does feminine. And that's yeah. just not acceptable in our society. And I thought about that, you know, as someone who never really, I've never thought that way. And I, I didn't realize that there were people who felt so strongly about that. And it was really eye-opening for me yeah. to hear about her experience. But I wonder if there's someone else out there who feels that same way, who will feel relieved at having someone else vocalize this experience. Right, right. Yeah, that was one of my favorite chapters in the book. Yeah, that for me personally, it was really meaningful for me to, to be able to uh, include her. I wanted to ask, and this is sort of the... Uh the elephant in the room as you're on a podcast with two dudes. Um, <laughs> and this is one of the issues I always had both as, as, as a DJ playing this stuff in the nineties and, and now, and also somebody writing about it is what is the place for either the male journalist, the male DJ, the male music fan promoter, whatever, what is their place in promoting feminism and music? Do they have one? And sort of, you know, is it okay as a white guy in the Midwest who played a ton of Riot Girl music back in the day, <laughs> um, but now feel kind of guilty about it, kind of after reading parts of the book? How do we reconcile that? How do we get involved in this with a certain sense of sincerity and I want to say passion, but also, I guess equality is a better word for it. How does that sort of all fit together. I hope this makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I think what I mentioned before is really important to keep in mind. You know, all these women had stories of men who, yeah. you know, when the opportunity arose, they helped, you know, they didn't go out of their way to say, well, I'm going to help you because you're a young woman kind of thing. They just helped because they saw someone who had talent and they were in a position to do something, you know, truly treating them as an equal. And mm -hmm. so I think it's interesting as I'm doing interviews for this book, it's is as many male journalists, as many male DJs as women wanting to talk to me about it and being supportive. And I think that's the main thing is just to normalize that and make sure that everyone knows that that's acceptable. And 
it kind of sends the message to any men who still are kind of harboring ideas that women should be allowed a place at the table that other men, you know, don't think that's true. Yeah. One of the one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book was the afterword by Susan Rogers. Mm. And I think that one of the one of the things about this whole topic, and that's something that we've talked about on our show a couple of times before, is that it isn't just the women on stage. I think that what is equally as important is to get more women in the role of producers and mm-hmm. engineers and talent reps and sound people and all that. Right. And, yeah. and I think that you have that, you know, the equality may be getting there on stage, but I think it's, it's also important to have it behind the scenes as that support network. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And that, that's one of the things that I think this book shows hasn't, um, progressed nearly enough. Yeah. Uh, there are still to this day very few women working as recording engineers mm-hmm. compared to men. There are still very few women working as a sound person. Like seriously, when I was on the road, like not one single, we, we did, I can't recall one single woman ever running a soundboard for me. Yeah. I don't, I can't remember the last time I've seen it. Catherine, for your information, <laughs> Stephanie used to be in a band in the 90s called the Aquanettas uh-huh. that was on IRS records. and all, So they toured all over the place. And a lot of this had, book rang true for me. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is one thing that definitely, you know, you, the last couple people in the book, the youngest ones in the book, you know, still mm-hmm. have stories of going into a venue and having the guys there say, well, let me plug that amp in for oh, you, yeah. little lady. Do you but, know how your microphone works? You know, that kind right. of thing. But yeah. and, you had you had similar experiences, <laughs> though. You had people question you about whether you had written your own articles. Yeah. Yeah. That's unbelievable to me. Yeah. We had that Um, about our own songs. Like, did people, did, who wrote your songs? And also same thing, like the, the amount of times someone went to set my drum set up. I'm like, I've been doing this since I was 15. I think (laughs) I can do it. Please take your hands off my drums. (laughs) I mean, the message is like, this is my job. I know how to do it. Um, Yeah. And then these, you know, I heard that story over and over again, more times than I put in the book because I didn't want to get it repetitive, but I chose a couple of them to illustrate that, that that's still happening. And, you know, the frustration of having those same people then come up after the show and seem amazed that they pulled off doing this this (laughs) show and doing a really great job. And they're like, well, yeah, how'd you think I got this gig? You know, (laughs) somebody thought that I was good enough to, to headline this show or whatever, you know, it's so why are you so surprised? Yeah. So yeah, that is definitely one of the most infuriating stories in this book for me personally, when I heard it was uh, Shade Sanchez of LA Witch, where she talked about a sound man who started arguing with her over the PA in the middle of a show. Mm -hmm. Like would that ever, ever happen? with Because she had asked for her volume to be changed a little bit. And this happens all the time. Anybody who goes to rock shows all the time, knows this is very common for someone to say, hey, can you turn my vocals down a bit? Or can you turn my guitar up a bit? You know, they're talking directly to the sound man, but it's no big deal. They're like, just just nudge it a bit. And then they go on with, it's not like they're attacking the sound man saying like, you're doing a bad job. They're just saying, can you just make this adjustment? 
no problem. And this guy started arguing back with her and then got physically intimidating with her Mm-mm. after the show. And she's the one who got kicked out of the club. When of I heard course. that story, I just, <laughs> I mean, yeah. And this is within the last decade. This happened. This is not something that happened yeah. in the seventies. Right. Yeah. I think the, re- the great thing about it, having, been to a lot of sound checks and sort of seeing this sort of progress and things is that there's a lot more fighting back. And I mean that in a positive way. There's a lot more people sort of like, I remember in the early 2000s, Amanda Palmer being very adamant about how she wanted her sound check to go and how everything was going to run. And it was like really just refreshingly great to see like when this was happening, it getting smacked down before it could get out of hand. And I think that But the Amanda chapter is a little bit interesting because she does admit that maybe the reason she walked in and was granted that kind of respect is because at the time she was in a duo with a guy. Yeah. I wonder if she had tried to do that, if she had started off as a a solo artist, Mm -hmm. if she would have been granted that same opportunity. Right. I mean, she even questions that in her chapter, you know? One of the things that I thought was really interesting on this particular subject was in Amy's chapter, she was talking about how when you start doing these tours and you come across those sound guys and, and lighting guys and things like that, who who assume you don't know what you're talking about. And she says, the truth is, we were in our early 20s. We really didn't know everything that we needed to know about this stuff, but you didn't have the opportunity to learn because they immediately discredited anything that you might already know. Yes. And I thought that was such an interesting insight. It's a catch Mm -hmm. 22. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, That was really very insightful. I thought. You're going to think that the only chapter I read was Amy Ray. It's not (laughs) the only chapter. (laughs) So much of that chapter stood out to me. She really, um, she was very, very forthcoming. And I will say, I mean, not to also dwell on that chapter over much, but I mean, like I, I've interviewed her many times over the years and she's always been, you know, really engaged, but this time was different. And I will say that I really felt that with a few of the the other artists that had interviewed before, a lot of these women came to this with me barely even having to ask anything at the start of the interview, they were just ready to go. Like they, they knew what the topic of this book was and they just had all these stories that just were bursting out of them. It really was kind of a fascinating experience as a journalist. Some of them, I just basically got out of the way, you know, I just let them tell me what they wanted to tell me. Um, You know, I had certain questions that I asked everybody so that there would be a certain baseline for all the chapters. You know, I wanted to ask about everybody's childhoods, you know, I had certain questions like, are you a feminist? That was one of the first things that I asked them. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, I kind of let people take it where they wanted to take it because again, going back to that, idea of I didn't want it to be uh, all samey, samey. But I also (laughs) wanted people to have the freedom to tell me what was important to them um, as a woman. And so some of these chapters are really different from the others. Like Laura Veers talks a lot about being a mother and Mm -hmm. trying to juggle being a single mother with being a musician. And and she talks quite in depth about that. And it was interesting to hear her take on that because nobody else really dug into it to that degree. Um, Several of the other women talk about being mothers, but she's the one who really explored with me what it was like to actually 
do that, uh, yeah. the logistics that are necessary in order to pull that off. And, and like one of her hopes, I think she even says that in that chapter is that she hopes that other musicians who read might read that could uh, then imagine themselves doing it. And it's not an impossible thing. You know, you, mm -hmm. yes, having a child or having a, you know, baby with you is inherently a little difficult, but like it's possible she had support to do it and she wasn't afraid to ask for help either, you know? Yeah. yeah. But that's another case where it kind of highlighted how things maybe still aren't quite equal because she pointed out, and it also rang true to me that, you know, a male musician whose father tends to leave those kids at home with yes. the mother. Yeah. There was a number tour. of people who made that point. Yeah. And it's, and it's true because yeah. women are thought of as caretakers yeah. and men are not. Right. And men, if they go off for six months on tour, it's it's thought of very differently than mm -hmm. if a woman were to do that. Right. Like it's almost and like abandonment. As soon as you said that, yeah, I thought, oh, yeah, that's kind of true. That is kind of a double standard that we seem to still have. Yeah. Rob was talking about the importance of the riot girl movement when that came up. Uh, there was another thing that got mentioned a couple of times in the book that I want to ask you about, and that's the importance of Lilith fair. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about some of that and some of the people who, who mentioned that in their interviews? Yeah. Um, two women in this book were, well, more than that, but two women mentioned it. And I, th I think, um, well, Paula Cole, we talked about it a little bit, um, mm -hmm. but that wasn't really the emphasis of her chapter. No. Um, the one who really focused on it, though, and that was so powerful, um, was Joan Osborne. Joan, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Planned um, Parenthood. Uh, she is a big supporter of Planned Parenthood, and she talks in her chapter about how um, she's done quite a, a lot of volunteer work for them over the years, including, you know, escorting women in and out of the local chapter of it here in New York and shielding women from any abuse that they might experience on their way in and out. And so she feels very strongly um, mm -hmm. about supporting Planned Parenthood. And she was on Lilith Fair and Planned Parenthood is one of the organizations that had a booth uh, that would be you know, like an information booth that was um, made available to people when they came to the, to the show. And when they got to a show in Texas, they didn't initially want to allow Planned Parenthood to be one of the, the, the organizations allowed to display their information at the venue. And the compromise that was struck was finally that they could have a booth there, but no one was allowed to actually point them in their direction from the stage. Like no one could talk about it from the stage. And Joan did it anyway. Yeah. And suffered the consequence of being banned to this day from that venue. Right. So she talks a lot about her feelings about that and, you know, the lead up to it and how, you know, she was angry at the organizers of Lilith Fair for making that compromise. She felt that they should not have made that compromise, that it wasn't a good compromise that they made. And that's why she defied it. It's really an interesting chapter. Now, a lot of women actually wanted to talk about reproductive rights because as I was doing these interviews, it was yeah. right when Roe versus Wade was being overturned. And that's something that several people brought up on their own without my asking. Yeah, And so I thought that was really interesting. Now, as a journalist, I would have liked to have gotten somebody who supported that decision to be included in this book, too. Sure. Just for balance. But, you know, I 
I don't know what's going to come out of people's mouths. I, I wasn't going to go seeking somebody specifically for that reason, because that's not a good, I mean, that's just not a good journalistic tack. <laughs> um, and the fact is, you know, music business does tend to skew very liberal. So it's not surprising that, you know, as a result, yeah. these chapters tend to skew that way. I would have thought that it would have been interesting, though, um, if I could have included someone who applauded that decision. Yeah. Just because I would have been curious to hear that perspective and include it alongside these others. But mm -hmm. that's not how it turned out. But it was interesting to hear what everybody had to say about that because everyone felt really strongly about it. Yeah, yeah, and that definitely also seemed to be a uniting factor from the oldest to the youngest, too. You know, like that mm -hmm. was something that was kind of a cohesive, you know, issue. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because I know there's people who are going to read this book who, you know, women who don't agree with that. Um, it, you know, one thing about this book that I hope everyone will take away, though, is that, you know, there's such opposing and differing views on so many different topics that I hope everyone will be able to find at least one chapter in this book where they think, well, this person for the most part expresses things the way that I think about things. And I wonder if maybe this will be the first time that some people have read a, a book that expresses that kind of thing because it does express such a wide range of viewpoints. Yeah, it really does. So Catherine, we are, we're recording this on uh, January 14th. The book officially comes out on Tuesday, the 16th. Mm -hmm. So once this episode comes out, the book will already be out in the world. But for you right now, are you excited about the book hitting the bookstore shelves for the first time? This is your first book. Are you excited to get feedback from it? Are you excited to hear what people say? Oh yeah, totally. I have, um, I'm very active on social media. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook and threads and I post pretty much almost every day. And it's been really interesting as I've progressed through this project to hear, you know, people's comments, um, good and bad. I can take constructive criticism. I will remove any kind of verbally abusive comments, yeah. though, just a heads up. <laughs> I'm not going not to tolerate that. But, um, you know, it's interesting to hear people's perspectives on this. And I know there's nobody that's going to agree with everything that's in this book, because even I don't. I mm, mean, right. you know, it'd be impossible because there are opposing opinions expressed in this book. So I hope this really will spark a, a dialogue, a wider dialogue, you know, yeah. where maybe it has professors talking about it in a class or, you know, people in a book club or even friends just amongst themselves. I hope that it really gets people talking about all the different topics that are touched on in this book, because I feel like, you know, feminism is the overarching theme, but that really opens up discussion on so many other topics. It's a really interesting umbrella topic, you know, that can really, I think, lead to some very interesting discussions. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really good history of a lot of movements under the umbrella of feminism, you know, starting back in the 70s, but then Riot Girl, Me Too, like all, there's so many different. Yeah, I hope this would be kind of a painless, non-textbook kind of way for anyone who's interested in yeah. feminism to kind of read about it and absorb it through these women's stories without getting, you know, hit over the head as if it were, you know, some kind of scholarly bunch of essays. Yeah, no, it's very entertaining at the same time. If, and it, yeah. it's, it's, it's a great blend. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
So if any listener is interested in meeting Catherine and having one of these discussions with her in person, there are some opportunities coming up. So this episode will be coming out on January 21st, which is right after you have appeared at Karis Books yes. in Atlanta. And I was planning on coming to the to your talk and meeting you and all this stuff. And unfortunately, that's the same night that I already have tickets to see Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. Ah. So I know I'm so disappointed. Awesome. But after that, January 26th in Salinas, California, you'll be appearing at Downtown Books and Sound. That's a virtual yeah, appearance. That That's one's not virtual, an in-person. but mm -hmm. they are going to have like a gathering. If anyone wants to go to the store, then they, they're going to have um, some mm -hmm. like, gathering of people there. But I will be virtual on that one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On February 20th, you'll be at Tomorrow Bookstore in Indianapolis. March 5th in Princeton, mm -hmm. you'll be at the Labyrinth Books in discussion with Tom Bojor, mm -hmm. the author of Nothing But a Good Time, who yeah. we've had on our show. He's great. He's great. <laughs> awesome. March 21st, you're at Narberth, Pennsylvania at Narberth Books. Mm -hmm. And March 23rd, Oldwick, New Jersey, Howling Bassett Books. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just, since I put that schedule out, I have uh, March 22nd at Headhouse Books in Philadelphia. And I'm also going to have appearances coming up. Stay tuned. Uh, I'm still working out the details on dates and such, but I will be uh, having some a couple of appearances up in Connecticut. And at some point, uh, it looks like I'm going to be out at the Punk Rock Museum in Las Vegas. That's and, so awesome. And also Hoboken, hopefully at Little City. Yeah, that one's also, um, hopefully that one within the next couple of months, uh, that one will be happening. So if people want to find out more about you, more about the book, more about your mm -hmm. upcoming appearances, where will they find you? Um, you can find me across social media. I'm under Catherine Yeske Taylor, Y-E-S-K-E, music journalist. You can find my pages. And yeah, I post really frequently, not just about this book, but you know, I'm still writing articles for yeah. various outlets around the country. I write quite often for American Songwriter places like that. And so I still have articles about all different kinds of artists, not just rock, um, but pop and country and mm -hmm. all different kinds of styles. So yeah, and I, I do try to engage with people. I mean, if you comment, I try to be good about getting back to people. Thank you so much for joining us. This has oh, no, been thank an you. absolutely enjoyable interview. It's a pleasure to meet you mm -hmm. and best of luck with the book. I'm really excited to see it on the bookshelves. I'm really excited to get people have it in their hands and, and to read this thing. Hey, thank you. Um, it's a real honor to be here. And I truly appreciate, you know, that you took the time to read it and come up with such great questions. Oh, we loved you. it. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for putting we, it out there in this world. We need it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I we, hope a lot of people will agree with you. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't mention it, but we've had Gina on our show a couple yeah, of times. Gina's oh, God, yeah, Gina's great. Yeah, she is such a live wire. Yeah, she's Man, really amazing. Her. She's another one who signed on early and has been a really enthusiastic supporter. She, um, She's been posting about it on her yeah. social media, which is really great. You know, um, some of the artists have been doing that and I truly appreciate it because I know that's going to be a huge help. And um, she's done that a few times, which I completely appreciate. So yeah. another instance of somebody who's, you know, got her success and still is turning around and seeing how she can help the yeah. next people in line. So. Yeah. 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 She told us when last time we interviewed her, how important that is to her. 
in all sorts of areas. Yeah. So she's just an amazing person. Mm -hmm. That's all there is to it. All right. Well, once again, we really appreciate you joining us and everybody should go and pick up a copy of She's a Badass when it hits the bookstore shelves, <laughs> which when you hear this, it's already out. So go do that. <laughs> thank you so much. Once again, it was such a pleasure. Yes. Thank you. Thanks so much. I hope Take to care. get to see you in uh, Hoboken. Yeah, I'll let you know. Um, I'll let you know when that one's definitely set. Okay, cool. I'll find you online. Cool. <laughs> All right. Take care. Have a okay. great night. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. 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 -bye. Oh, that was oh that was great. She was so awesome. So much fun. What a really good interviewer, you know? Interviewee. Interviewee. I mean, it sounds like you're congratulating us. <laughs> we were fucking great. No, I mean, she amazing. Was, she was so good. Like such a wonderful, uh, so well, I don't know. Everything was just, I loved everything she said. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back to wrap up our episode. Don't go anywhere. Helm report. Sir, there's Klingons on the starboard bow. Starboard bow? Starboard bow. What are they doing there? They seem to be waiting for the new episode of Earth Station Trek. Science, what do we know about this Earth Station Trek? It's a podcast that tracks through the history of Star Trek, from the early days on NBC to the future on Paramount Plus and everywhere in between. Navigation, how would one find such a podcast? By setting coordinates for EarthStationTrek.com or by doing a sensor sweep of Spotify, iTunes, or any other quadrant where fine podcasts are available. Captain, what are we going to do about the Klingons? We come in peace, Commander. Weapon station, shoot to kill. Shoot, shoot to, to kill. kill! Shoot to kill! All right, we are back. Let's talk really quickly about where people can find us if they want to learn more about us individually. Rob, where can people track you down? Okay, so you can find me yeah. on uh, KDHX on Wednesday nights from 7 to 9 Central uh, for Juxtaposition. And um, if you miss a show uh, of that because you're out doing something or other in the world, you can uh, stream that online for two weeks. Every show is archived for two weeks on their website. Uh, you also can find me on Monday nights, uh, 6 to 8 Greenwich Time, 12 to 2 Central, 1 to 3 Eastern on Louder Than War Radio uh, with Antics. Um, I as of this recording, I have just um, celebrated life, the universe, and everything by recording uh, show number 42, um, <laughs> which is awesome. So uh, that's on. And then starting in February, I will be on um, The Face Radio, which is an online radio station based in Brooklyn. So it's all going full circle uh, for me back to Brooklyn. Yeah. I started doing a lot of uh, radio and shenanigans as well. And then there's something else coming in June that I can't talk about yet, but that's mm. coming as well. Because you oh, don't God. have enough things to do. Right. <laughs> well, he, Alan's busy too. <laughs> I know busy. you're all busy. <laughs> yeah. Well, Stephanie, you're busy. Yeah. I'm busy, but not as busy as you two. And but... where can but where can people find out more about how busy you are? Okay. And you some can... of your upcoming things. Yeah. Well, I am slowly starting to record again. So yes. Hopefully, so excited. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on Stephanie. You can find me on Facebook at Stephanie Seymour Music. You can find me on Instagram at there underscore r underscore birds. And I also have a website, thereirbirds.com. And you can find me at, uh, you know, on all the uh, streaming platforms like Spotify and stuff like that. And also, of course, on Bandcamp. Of course. Of course. And, and I have a website called something 
What's that called? Cosmic, 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 cosmic creative.com. K O Z M I C creative.com. I've got some books I've written. I've got some podcasts that I do outside of this one. Go check them out. Next week, we are going to be talking about Beatles, but we're going to be talking about covers of Beatles songs. Why do you look so surprised, Stephanie? I forgot. <laughs> oh, shit. Well, you got a week to prepare. And this is an easy one. You just talk about covers of Beatles songs. All right. So we will be back next week. Thank you all for listening so much. If you've got comments or questions or feedback for us, you can email us at modernmusicology1 at gmail.com or just leave a comment on our socials or message us on our Facebook page or do something. We'll send up smoke signals. We'll find you. Everybody have a great week. Take care. We'll see you around the bend. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.